Is it true you DM'd Ava to get slid all the way up? <laughs> you slid all you yeah, slid Ava DuVernay's DMs. I, and let me tell you something. I don't judge nobody. Live your best life. Do whatever you want to <laughs> do. But I use my social media for working and not twerking, girl. I had to say, wait a minute. I don't care nothing about wiggling and giggling. I got to slide up in here and get this job right quick. There are certain people who bring such authenticity to their roles that even if they were playing a tree, they would bring their entire aura with them to play that tree. Uh, my guest today is someone who, I don't care if she's playing a witch, a cheerleader, the lead in a romantic comedy, a donut, Niecy Nash is always herself. I just love her hit TV show, Claws. I love the evolution of her career. And I'm telling you, Claws, if you don't know by now, is one of the best things on television. Anyway, I am super excited to welcome Niecy Nash to today's episode of Jamel Hill is Unbothered. So I like to think I go on some pretty good vacations. I've been to Fiji, Thailand, Australia, Greece, whole bunch of places. I've never been to any of those places. None of those places? <laughs> no. Well, you know what? It doesn't matter because you had the ultimate vacation stunt. I saw the Instagram post recently that you made. Uh, it was you, Oprah, Ava DuVernay, David Oyelowo. I don't know. Where, were you guys in Maui? Yes. That looked like the most awesome vacation of all time. So I just... <laughs> The level of stuntness going on in this vacation, I was just like, oh my God, this is, I just imagine y'all having sleepovers and talks and like, that oh, must have been you, a, Did you see I tweeted that I had a, I mean, posted that I had a pajama party while I was there I and they all came? Yet, yeah, no, it was the best vacation I've ever had in my entire life. Wow. So what made it so special? I mean, other than the company, obviously, because these are people you're clearly close to. Well... You know, sometimes you go on a vacation and it's like, you know, a turn up. You know what I mean? And uh, Ava and I were originally going to the Bahamas, just she and I. And then it turned into something else. You know, let's go over to Lady O's house. I said, girl, she said, think about it. I said, girl, give me five minutes. Let me take my whole clothes out the bag and uh, <laughs> put on something a little more respectable. <laughs> so you, you travel with whole clothes? Is that? Well, I mean, it was a it was a, supposed to be a turn up, and then because you don't wear those clothes at home, they're the only things you wear on vacation. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, so, but this was more restorative. It was more like your soul needs some rest. So it was a very different vibe, and it was everything I needed. You know, and that's what made it so great is that I knew that I felt the presence of the Most High on that vacation in my life. So that's what made it special. Have you ever um, taken a vacation by yourself? No. No. So I did this once. Um, this was many, not, well, not too many years ago, but um, I took a vacation by myself. It was the first time I had ever gone to Cabo. And when I tell you that was one of the most restful, I think it's probably the most restful vacation that I ever had. I know, especially if you're a woman, there's this stigma about going on vacation uh, by yourself that is supposed to mean something about what your life does or doesn't have. And um, every day, I mean, I probably was in bed with the exception of the last day by like 1030. Mm -hmm. And I slept for like nine, 10 hours every day. I read three books. 
I mean, I it got, was very much oh eat, pray, love. It was. <laughs> that was me. I was like, I'm gonna eat what I want. I'm gonna drink what I want. I'm gonna read what I want. And I had a blast. I mean, you know, when you're traveling by yourself, people at the resort may see you and kind of feel sorry for you. I was like, mm, don't feel sorry for me. I'm truly living my best life right now. So I always advocate and encourage women in particular, every woman to go on a vacation by themselves. The only reason that would give me pause is because I'm a little fearful going out of the country by myself. Gotcha. You know what I mean? And then I definitely am not going to go off the resort if I'm alone. You know what I mean? So I'm not opposed to doing it for myself, but the only thing that gives me pause is like, there's a woman in a strange land. <laughs> she walked what? in with no one. I love She's the- easy prey. <laughs> You know, I watch murder shows. Did I, I like, mention see, that? I watch, like a lot of, I watch a lot of crime and murder. Mm-hmm. So with that said, you know what I mean? I'm a date blind ID type of broad. And I don't want to, you know, mess around and be like, golly, they cut my head off and I wasn't even wearing my favorite wig. You know, I don't want that to be my legacy. Yeah, that's that's very important. Very, yeah. very important. Do you watch Snapped? Because oh, Snap, What? Yeah, that's another one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. People crazy out here. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> people are very crazy. Um, but, you know, it, bringing up that vacation, uh, part of, I think, um, what makes you stand out and so unique is that you, whether it's, you know, whatever role that you're playing, that you approach it with a level of authenticity. Like, even if you're playing somebody who I know is probably n- nothing like you. It feels like you, like you're always able to put your stamp of yourself on every character that you've played. Was that something that was intentional or is that something that you kind of developed over time? Very intentional. Because I think in order for a character to really land and find a place in my being for the time that I have to carry her, um, we got to find something we have in common. We got to find a place where... Where we land in 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 a in a in a familiar place, like oh, I could lean into that about this person. I this is a a, a character trait that I have too, or you know those sorts of things, so that I can make them as grounded as possible. Yeah, um, I I had actually Karuchi um, on the podcast recently, and did I- she get on your nerves like she get on mine? <laughs> she said she lives to get on your nerves. Oh, okay, well. yeah. <laughs> Is it working? <laughs> For sure. Yes. A plus. Um, but I told her I got on claws late because, um, and it was always a show that in the back of my mind I really wanted to watch, but I never took the extra step of like DVRing it or whatever. And my braider in Inglewood is a huge fan of the show. And one day I was in there getting my hair braided, and you know that's like a six, seven hour deal. And we watched the whole first season. And after that, I was like, this is my show. Like, I just loved everything about it and the characters. And you don't see women written like this or the way that you guys portray um, these very complicated but funny um, women. So how did Claus, how did that happen? You and Claus, how did you get this role? Um, I was just wrapping up my series that I did for five seasons with Cedric the Entertainer called The Soul Man. Um, So it was like, well, what's next, you know? And I got a number of scripts, read them all. You know, you don't know what's going to go. So I hedged my bets on this project that was on Fox. And it didn't go. Inadvertently, the day I found out that it wasn't going to go, so did the people who had created Claws. 
And they called back and said, can she take a meeting? And I said, I remember, wait, I read their script, right? What was it again? I went back and read that script and I said, oh my God, this is so good. Am I crazy? How come I didn't do this in the first place? I don't know what happened. I might have already been into it with the other people when their script came along. But they found me and were interested in me because of a series that I did on HBO called Getting On. It was a very small series, but it was an industry darling. So I went to the meeting pretty much like I am now. I have on shorts and a little over caftan. Um, so yeah, I went kind of just like I look now, which is really how Desna dresses in, in a lot of ways. Um, but I went to the meeting and then I said, oh, they're nice enough. Got in the car. My phone rang. My manager said, so do you want to do the job? And I was like, huh? I said, you talking about this job? The people I just met with? He's like, yeah. And I said, I'm still in the car. I haven't even made it to the gate. He said, well, they called. They want you to do it. And that was where it all began. So what was it that immediately resonated with you about Desna? Mm, I loved how she was so fiercely loyal to her crew. But the main thing that spoke to me was the fact that she, if I played her, now I can't speak to somebody else doing it, but for me, it was a picture of so many women in my life, black women on the South side of, the, of 40, not married, no kids, having sex for their own pleasure, living their life on their own terms and unapologetic about it, not a size two. So you get to see a fully formed woman eat on camera, have sex on camera, show her jiggly parts on camera and not, not living to find a man, but just experiencing them if they come her way. You know, just so many things about it. I was like, this woman needs to be on TV. I fought up until the night before principal photography began to get her to wear her hair out in just like a natural, untamed state. They gave me a little blondish, you know, high-lit soccer mom, Bob. I don't know what it was, but I was like, this feels so wrong. So wrong. That first, the first episode, of the pilot of the first episode of season one, I got them clothes from a Walmart because I said, these clothes are wrong. I was like, please send somebody to go get something else. And then I regretted the day I put them burgundy booty shorts on because <laughs> I feel like I wore them for an eternity. But the point is, it was right. And so. Well, and then even to, to fast forward, um, you, because uh, this is part of what Karuchi and I talked about, is that you had a lot to do with her getting that role as Virginia. What made you think of her in particular for that role? Well, it was one of the roles and I went in to read with every character, you know, every group of girls for this character, for that character. And they could not find Virginia. And they had seen um, a number um, of Asian actresses and couldn't find a place to land. You know what I mean? And I thought about Karuchi because of who Virginia is. Yes, in part, you know, she's Asian and Black. But the other part is the fact that Virginia was at a place in her life where she wanted to redefine herself. 
You know what I mean? She comes from the pole. She wants sisterhood. She wanted a family. She wanted to belong, to be held in high esteem. She had went through a lot in her life. And there were some parts of just the journey, not specifically, but emotionally to me that reminded me of Karuchi at the time. You know what I mean? You're known for one thing. You're known for one point in time in your life. And you want to say, I'm more than the sum. The sum of my life is more than this one person I dated or this one thing I did. It's like, come on, y'all. You know what I mean? And I felt like she wanted, when I say she, Karuchi, wanted to invite people to see her differently. And I saw that in Virginia. And I'm like, maybe it's this baby right here is the one who could, this is, try this girl. And they brought her back a couple times, brought her back, brought her back, brought her back. And then finally, you know. Well, what is, um, what's admirable about her too, uh, Karuchi, um, is that she, it still means a lot to her to work at this. And so we were talking about her being in acting classes and how she's constantly trying to get better. And um, I think a lot of people just have these really, different perceptions about who she is. And when you sit down and you talk to her, you know, this is somebody who is taking this very seriously, even though initially this was not what she saw herself doing. So what have you tried to, what advice or, I know this probably happens all the time and very organically between the two, but what have you tried to kind of maybe teach her about this industry and having longevity, longevity as as you've experienced in your career? Well, uh, a couple things. One, I think you have to stay in class because you, you're catching up to people who've been doing it their whole life. You know what I mean? So you have to be a prepared place to be able to pick off characters because not all of them are going to be easy. You know, some stuff you might pick up is right in your wheelhouse. You know what I mean? And then there are other things where you got to go in the lab. You got to shut the door. You got to sit down. You got to do research on it. You know, all those sorts of things. And you got to be able to find it. And the other thing is to pay attention. She came on that set working with a lot of veterans. Everybody who was on that series but her had had a series. So to watch and learn and do never be afraid to ask a question. And never take it offensively if someone gives you a note. Why? Because we're a collective and we're all trying to win at this thing. And if you need us, we are so there for you. And that that was, you know, you know, she was very quiet season one because she didn't want to, you know, upset the apple cart. She was wide eyed. And then I don't know what happened season two. She got comfortable, girl. The next <laughs> thing I know, she started getting on my damn nerves. And I said, Lord, what we done created a monster, a baby monster over here. <laughs> yeah, uh, she said that filming is quite fun. <laughs> well, you... there's a lot of antics, a lot of yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I can definitely I can definitely see that being the case. Um, one thing you did in the series, you also directed television for the first time. Mm -hmm. Um, what was that experience like? Oh, I love telling people what to do. <laughs> I was, natural I was born for it. <laughs> yeah, no, I um I I love being able to shift the atmosphere on set. I'm the first director in three seasons that ever played uh hip hop and RB between setups. <laughs> um I'm the first director to bring in a second line. Uh you know, just to encourage the crew because a lot of times people look at the actors. You know, but it's, it takes a village. And I wanted to make sure I loved on everybody. 
in, in the creative process. What I found out about myself is that once you turn in your edit, that's not the final edit. You know what I mean? The networks, the studios, everybody chops up what you did, and then you get to see it after that. And that, that didn't make me happy. <laughs> I said, ooh, maybe I need to be directing film, honey, because I like having the last word, too. I want to boss you around and have the last word. So, but but I, I loved working uh, from that lane. I know it must be hard because you get a, a ton of scripts, but is there is there ways or or things that resonate with you that you can tell that something is going to be really good? I think, you know what, it, it's so subjective. You know, <laughs> you do something and you're like, I mean, like when we did Reno 911, we had no idea it was going to be anything. We were just running around doing make-me-ups. We was doing a fake version of Cops. <laughs> and the next thing you know, it's a cult phenomena. You know what I mean? We didn't see that coming. Nobody nobody knew that was going to happen. Um, so there are sometimes you see something and you're like, oh my God, this is going to be everything. And then the next thing you know, it dies on the vine. So it, it just depends. Well, I asked, that, I asked that for a reason, just because I wondered when you got the script and finally saw When They See Us, if you had any idea that this would be the reaction, and I don't mean the the numerous Emmys um, that the series deservedly was nominated for, yourself included as, as a lead actress, but the way this has touched people is way different than what you typically see, um, you know, from any kind of dramatic series. And I know it's based off a true story, but still the way this is really stuck in people's spirit to me is very special and different. I, I, I did not. No, I could not see past those men. I couldn't do it. There wasn't a, oh, watch, this is what's going to happen with the world. This is what's going to happen with the academy. This is what's going to happen. You know, I could not see past them right there. And I think that that was the goal. That was the collective for us to see them and then to be able to interpret their experience um, on film and 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 let that and and I just think it for me that was as as shallow as you know a view as I could have in that moment. Let me get this right because we owe it to them to get it right, and then whatever happened after that, I. You know, we'll 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 take whatever it comes with it, but that was the that was the guiding force for how we moved around with that project. So, is it true you DM'd Ava to get slid all the way up? <laughs> you slid off. You yeah, slid Ava DuVernay's DM. And let me tell you something. I don't judge nobody. Live your best life. Do whatever you want to <laughs> do. But I use my social media for working and not twerking, girl. I had to say, wait a minute. I don't care nothing about wiggling and giggling. I got to slide up in here and get this job right quick. And the crazy thing is that I had seen a documentary on these, when they were boys, the story. And I felt like for years I was carrying a burden for people that I did not know. I hated the injustice that happened. And so when I found out she was doing, Ava was doing the project, I was like, I need to be in this. I need to help tell this narrative. And I didn't care who I was. I just would have been somebody standing, all come to order. <laughs> I would have been the bailiff. I would have been anybody. I just wanted to help get this right. 
So I didn't know. She was like, what are you even talking about right now? <laughs> sure. Come on. I was like, I will audition. I will do anything. Tell me what you need me to do. That was Dolores Wise, uh, Corey Wise's mother, for for those who, for the five of you who have not seen this series yet. <laughs> um, was Dolores always who she had in mind for you? I don't know. It was the first name that ever came up when she and I discussed it. Um, and even if you look at the visuals of all the mothers, that one made the most sense, you know, of the girls who she was looking at. But, yeah, I don't know. So how do you prepare to play that kind of character? You do as much research as you can. You listen to every interview. You read every transcript. You, you If you can, meet with or talk to the real person. Um, and then, like I said earlier, you find the common ground. You find a thread, a through line between you and that character. Um, and you And you go to work. What was the through line? Well, we were both mothers. We both uh, were parents of a boy. I mean, you know, and for me, I feel like being mothers and being in a situation where you you cannot protect your children causes me great anxiety. You know, because like once they move out or once, you know, they're in a sticky situation and, and there's there's very little you can do about that. Um, so those were the places that I felt like in win, lose or draw. I know that as a mother, she loved her children. And as a parent, you are always doing the best you can at that moment with whatever resources you have, whatever trauma is still living in your body, whatever your past may have been, that's a collective. And you stand in front of somebody who is looking for you to protect them. And you take all of those ingredients and you do the best you can. I could identify with that. Now, you had some interaction with the real life, Dolores Wise. Yes. Um, what was that interaction like? Well, I'm I'm very protective of her and the specifics, but I will tell you that her pain was very palpable. I got that this, even though this happened in her rearview mirror, she was still very present to um, the pain that it caused and continues to cause. What's the difference when you play a, somebody who is a real person versus, you know, you playing somebody, you know, like Desna? Like when you're playing a real person, I imagine there's got to be some different responsibilities you might feel. Very different. I mean, first of all, you want to get it right. Um, second of all, you know, you want to, especially if the person is still living, you know, uh, you want to make sure that you take from their essence, their influence. You know what I mean? You don't want to, you know, so much be a caricature, but you want to embody what you're getting or what you perceive to bring that character to life. I mean, you with Desna, you could just make up all kind of stuff as a backstory. You know what I mean? Oh, she used to wrangle alligators. <laughs> Did she? You know, throw it in an episode. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? You can you can go all off the walls, but when you are playing a real person, you know, you got to stay close to the line. Uh, now, emotionally, um, was it a, a different, with dealing with such heavy material and heaviness, just with the project itself, emotionally, was that 
Did that take a toll on you? It did. And what I found out about myself is that I really need a break after that kind of material. You know, you know, self-love is identifying it. Well, self-care, I guess, is identifying it. But self-love is walking it out. So I know better now. I know that I cannot be in a place where my emotions are experiencing such trauma, trying to hold it in my body to continue to tell the story and then leave that job and go right to another job, which is what I did. You know what I mean? In the 1970s, they used to call it having a nervous breakdown. <laughs> you know, today they'll say, oh, she, she's, she's having some anxiety. You know, I was just like, what is happening? In, why do I feel like this? You know what I mean? I just picked up another script and was like off to the races with another character that was going through things and experiencing all of the. I've played a lot of emotionally charged women back to back to back to back. And I tell you what, my soul got tired because I didn't realize that I needed to what I needed to do to take it off before I pressed the reset button. I got it together now. But <laughs> see, that's why you needed that vacation. <laughs> what? That's why you needed it. What? Yeah. I had been working for a year straight before I went to Maui. Wow. No breaks. So at this point, it's funny because I think up to a certain point, people considered you more on the comedic side. Like, a huh? Comedic, Talk right? about it. Talk like, about it. And then all of a sudden, it's just like it turns <laughs> and you're, you suddenly, you know, you're playing these very heavy, serious characters. And Jasmine definitely has some, you know, there's some levity that you bring to her character. Is there a part of you like, why can't somebody just offer me something where I just make people laugh the whole time right now? Well, because it was crazy. The industry told me that I had a lane. They were like, you do broad comedy. We've seen it. We know what it gives. You stay over there. And I never wanted to be funny. Ever. Really? I got pinched in church for cutting up. I got on punishment because my report card says talks too much. My mother's like, well, what was you talking about? I was telling jokes. Oh, go get the belt. I got a joke. You want to see what's funny? <laughs> you, you know, so nobody, <laughs> it, nobody told me comedy was a thing. You know what I mean? So I always wanted to be a dramatic actress, but I could not get anyone to give me a job as a dramatic actress. And then in 93, um, my brother was murdered and my mother went into this deep depression and she said, I'm getting into bed and I'm never getting out. And I didn't know what to do. I was really young. I think he, he was killed the day before my 22nd or 23rd birthday. And But I knew I could make my mama laugh. So I started performing at the foot of her bed, telling her jokes and stories and doing all my things. I would come every day. She went from laying down in the bed to sitting up. I got my peanuts and my water. Go on and do your rendition of things. And I would do my rendition of things. And then one day I come and she's not in the bed. We're in here. I'm like, who is we? Well, I went across the street and got the neighbors and I told them you was funny. Get that karaoke microphone and tell these people some jokes. And I was like, what is happening? And that was in that moment, I realized that comedy was a gift. Not that it, 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 it healed my mother completely, but it was a piecemealing, like a spackle. It, it, it kind of, you know, it, it had a cohesive sort of energy 
to her spirit. And I, as I was standing there telling my neighborhood jokes, I heard a voice as audible as my own say, Nisi, don't be selfish. It's other people suffering. Go outside and spread this around. So when I went outside and I said, I'm Nisi Nash and I'm funny, people were like, yes, you are, little girl, come here. And so I always kept saying, but can I try drama? No, 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 no. I would like to do drama. No, 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 no. And they kept me in that comedy lane for a long time. And then when I, then I had a big team meeting, told all my agents and managers I wanted to reintroduce myself because I think you know me. I think you think you know me, but I've changed. I want to do this. Help me navigate this and figure this out. And now that I'm on the other side of the line, I'm like, maybe I should go back to comedy. <laughs> I just think I need balance. I need to, you know, because I like them both a lot. But I, yeah. Yeah, it was like I was probably swinging the other, the pendulum is swung. And now you're probably getting all these heavy roles that people want you to play. Well, the crazy thing is the first two times I was nominated for an Emmy, it was in a comedy category. This nomination is in a dramatic category. So I was like, it was very affirming to me just personally to say, see, I knew I could tackle this kind of work if somebody just gave me a chance. Now, your, your foray into acting is very different than I think a lot of the um, stories that people hear about how and why people got into acting and how they um, grinded to get to wherever it is they got to. You got into acting um, when you really started getting into it. If what I've read is correct, you already had a full-scale family, right? When you started. I mean, a you, whole family. You had a whole family. Um, what was that experience like you had because you had what two or three kids I think mm -hmm, at the time mm -hmm. and trying to be an actress and a whole husband and a whole husband so you a wife you were trying to be an actress you a mother all of these things how in the world were you able to make this happen with that as your dynamic you're the only person who has ever asked me that question here's what I will tell you I used to look out the window and I would see the likes of you know Tashina Arnold and Tisha Campbell and Essence Atkins and, you know, Wendy Raquel Roberts and all the girls just working and doing the thing and just watching everybody, you know, glow up, you know what I mean, in their 20s and they was jam And I was just like, sit down, where's the bye-bye? You know what? Okay, uh, you better stop it. Uh, you know what? Go to sleep. Go, go, go to sleep. Huh? You know what I mean? That was my life. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to go out there with them. You know, and I had, at that moment, I chose to believe what I feel like God stamped on the canvas of my imagination, which is the call on your life is entertainment. So now what you going to do? And I said, I'm going to walk it out. And the three words that I will live by is no matter what. No matter if I have a fight with my husband and I have to, and I'm crying all the way to an audition where I got to be funny. When I pull up in that parking lot, I'm going to fix that face. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to get after it. If I got a call back in the afternoon, I got to pack up three kids and put them in the corner. Once I walk in the place, I got to pass out the coloring books and the graham crackers and the, all the things. Don't move. Don't do this. One time I had to have a girl, had the little baby. A girl, I sat in the lobby holding my baby, and I said, hey, girl, how you doing? She was like, well, I'm fine. She kept trying to look at her words and get herself together. I said, where you from? 
Really? What? Oh, that's cute. Oh, I like your shoes. And that girl was saying, will you stop talking to me so I can look at my thing? And then they called my name and I said, can you do me a favor? Can you hold this? And I handed her my baby. And I was praying the whole time I was in there like, Lord, please don't let this girl run off with my little black baby. Please don't let this white woman steal my child because what am I going to do? You know what I mean? How am I going to explain that to anybody? So they're going to say, ma'am, so you handed her the baby. I mean, they do like to adopt us now. That's kind of a thing. Listen, she would have took my baby and went on. And my baby was so cute. I said, ooh, I want that baby back. And um, But but I I stayed the course. Take a job at night so you can audition during the day. Figure it out. I, I just, I had to figure it out. So there wasn't one time or maybe, maybe, maybe it was multiple times that you never wanted it to say, I don't know, if, or or think to yourself, I don't know if this is worth it. You never had that thought? No. No, no, no. How can the call on your life not be worth it? I mean, it's going to cost you something, but <laughs> that thing going to work out in the end if you stick with it. It's definitely going to work out. Failure was not an option. Not for me. So my plan A was to be an actor. and My plan B was to make my plan A work. So when you don't have a backup plan, you don't have a choice. You don't have a choice. I'm sure you had little affirmations on the way, but was there a moment or moments where even though you have this call, you have this burning desire, you know this is for you, but you still need things along the way to say, to kind of prove to you that you're doing the right thing. But was there a role or a moment of affirmation that you received from someone else or through some circumstance where it really solidified in your brain, this is it and there is no turning back? I was going to an audition for a Ryan Murphy series called Popular. I was used to auditioning and walking in a room and seeing either a room full of girls I didn't know or a room full of girls who I had seen, you know, along the way. I walked into that audition and every girl sitting in there had already had a series. Tisha was there. Tashina was there. Essence Atkins was there. It was a number of girls there. I turned around, I looked, I turned around and walked right out. I walked right out. And I was like, I know every girl in there. And I started to, you know, have a panic. Like, wait a minute. This is not how I usually audition. And I prayed in that parking lot. And God told me, if you believe where I'm taking you, then you can be fans of these women if you want to, but I'm telling you that those are your peers if you believe where I'm taking you. And I was like, right. I turned around. I walked right back in there. Hey, girl, how y'all doing? Oh, hey, hi. And out of all those girls in that room, I booked it. With their pedigree, I booked it. And I was like, I'm on the right path. Well, um, I wish I had a collection plate around here because I would gladly pass it to you. <laughs> I know you're rich now. Like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but I have so much more I want to ask you about. In particular, three names, Shaq, Beyonce, and Jay-Z. Because we're going to talk about this Family Feud video, which is, if you have not seen the Jay-Z, Beyonce, Family Feud video, first of all, it shouldn't even be called a video. That's like a whole movie unto itself. Um, but we're going to talk about that uh, after the break. So we have more with Niecy Nash coming up.
So another one of your friends that I had on the podcast was Ava. And I asked her, what was, was there something she directed or project she worked on where she really didn't like it? Like, wasn't that proud of it? And, or I would say proud, that's probably not uh, the right word. I don't want to put too much on it. But one that I think she'd like to have back is the Family Feud video. Because that's the one she said. And not because she had any issue with artistically what was done, but mostly because she's, she blamed her inability to direct Beyonce because she was so starstruck by directing Beyonce. She was like, I didn't know what to tell her. Like, she's Beyonce. <laughs> so in this in this video, it's you, it's Kate Jastain, it's Michael B. Jordan, uh, Trevante Edwards. I mean, it's so many actors in this. I didn't know it was like a full-scale film. What... um. What was that experience like working on that? Well, first of all, it was a secret. Mm-hmm. So Ava just called and was like, hey, how you doing? Hi, friend. And I'm like, by the way, that's a really good impression. <laughs> that's a really good impression of Ava. <laughs> I said, what's up, girl? Uh, nothing. Um, just checking to see if you're around on Saturday. And I was like, yeah, what's what you need? Well, I can't really tell you, but I want you to show up at this place and we're going to do something. I was like, all right. <laughs> so you were a friend. I, I, didn't, I wouldn't wanted to ask too many questions. I mean, but it's Ava. Right. So you kind of know, it's a couple of people in this town, and the list is so short, that when they call, they have you at hello. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and she's one of those people for me. You know what I mean? I would have showed up and read the phone book. Is this all we doing today? <laughs> Can we go get tacos after this? <laughs> you know, I'm easy. So when I showed up and I started seeing all these women, hey, Rosario Dawson, oh, Constance Wu, hey, girl, Janet Mock, Janet Mock, Mindy Kelly, hey, Mindy. You know, I didn't even know who was in it. I just started looking around and these women was coming out the woodworks. You know what I mean? And I was like, got to be, is that Brie Larson? You know what I mean? And so we were just there and then she told us what it was. Somebody put us in fabulous clothes and there you go. <laughs> Cause you, um, I would imagine you did, probably didn't film anything with Jay or Beyonce. No, yeah, I, we, cause we did the part where the women run the world. Run the world. Right. Yeah. So they weren't there for that part mm-hmm. of it. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And then Susan played a, a older version of Blue Ivy and all of that. It was just a beautiful day in LA. Um, and I got to hang out with really great women and do what, you know, we should be doing, which is running the world. Uh, we've tried it the other way. <laughs> you see how that's turning out right now. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was great. Well, it, it seems like mentorship in general is something that's really important to you. Because um, I, I I think I saw an interview you did. It might have been the, the, the Breakfast Club where you talked about you've never gotten a job and not gotten someone else a job. Ever. Ever, right. So why is that spirit of paying it forward and, and mentoring and, and doing things like that? Because you don't have to do that. You could just be looking out for yourself. But why is that in particular important to you? When I started in this business, I didn't know anyone to help me, to guide me, to give me a, anything. And I had to figure it out on my own. And I just, I don't like it. I don't like it. And I remember one time I didn't get a job very, very early on in my career and I felt like the reason that it, I didn't get it 
was because I was selfish. And even selfish to the extent, not that I don't love all my family and take care of people the closest to me, but in my prayer, what time, what was revealed to me was that the world is bigger than just your family. Like, you know what I mean? And, and I just feel like being an actress, that's what I do. But my who is to be of service in the world. And how do you do that? Right where you are. Whether I worked at the bank, whether I, you know, was a nurse or whatever I was doing with my life, how do you be, how are you of service to the world? And so I just wanted to make sure that I just, I just didn't want to be a selfish person. And I didn't want to have a blessing and not have other people that I know be able to eat off of it. I mean, why? You know what I mean? I mean, so the 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 places that I serve is where I'm planted because it's the it's the it's the easiest fruit for me to pick. If you said, Nisi, can you come over my house and cook a three course meal? We're going to be struggling. You know what I mean? But if there is something that I could do for you in the realm of what it is I have mastered, that's easy. Yes. What is what you need? What is it? So cooking is not your ministry. What are you talking about? <laughs> what I told Winnie when I got married, I said, "Listen, you can have cooking in the bedroom or cooking in the kitchen. Pick one. You will not get both, and I'm fine either way." I imagine that was a very quick answer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> I imagine that was a quick answer on his part. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> Look, some of us are called to things, and some of us are not called to other ones. So mm-hmm. I appreciate that you have the self awareness to know where your gifts are. No, because if if I did cooking in the kitchen, it, I would have done it if that was his choice. But it, I probably would be a good cook by now. But I was gonna. Ha- it was gonna be a struggle ministry, honey. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that that spirit of you know paying off blessings, you know, and and planning people alongside, you know, whatever it is that you have been gifted with. Uh, is that a rarity in Hollywood? From my experience, um, I would say yes, because a lot of people typically will offer you something if it can also benefit them. See, there's nothing in it for me. If your music, if you if you are a songwriter and, and I submit your music to the sound department, I mean, to our music supervisors for Claws, and they buy your music, I'm not asking you for money back. I don't ask you for anything. So there's nothing in that for me. And typically in this business, it was nothing so much so in it for me to refer Karuchi. I mean, I already had a job. You, you understand what I'm saying? And somebody is going to do it. You know what I mean? And Hollywood is full of thousands, hundreds of thousands of talented people. So I say all that to say is the true gift of giving is when there isn't anything in it for you. Um, and a lot of times with Hollywood, what is typical is I'm going to give you this because it's going to help me. It's going to make my movie funnier if you're in it. It's going to make me look better if you are my Instagram. It's going to move the needle on the dial for me if I'm with you doing thus and so. So that's typically how it it works. There seems to be this sense or building narrative in Hollywood that right now is a good time for Black actors, um, particularly women. Um, Do you buy that that is the case? I do. Mm -hmm. I think it's a good time. But I mean, you know, it's like anything. It's an ebb and a flow. 
You know what I mean? You you get to the point where you have a movie with black people in it who that has outperformed things, and now every studio want to make their version of something with black and brown people. But even though the needle is moving on that dial, I constantly say the world is bigger than just black and white people. It's so many people whose stories are not being told, whose narrative you can't go sit down in the theater and watch. You know what I mean? So we have come way far forward. You know what I mean? But we still got work to do if you ask me. Yeah, as I say now, I mean, what do you think as a as a black actress, the challenges that you still face and things you still have to deal with um, that have been persistent throughout your career? Well, even when I got claws, you know, season one, I was I worked myself to death because still to this day as a black actress, actor, person, I don't know, person of color, but as a black woman, my if that show failed in season one, it would have taken me at least four to five years before I got number one on the call sheet again, before I got to lead the series. Because no matter the reason it failed, they're going to look at you and say, you can't carry a series. So that's still real. It's not like some of our contemporaries who get chance after chance after chance. Oh, that show failed. Give them another. We believe in them. They're a great talent. You know, so I would have been playing a second, third, or fourth banana for several years before I got a do-over. Yeah, I recently saw a similar conversation around Halle Berry because um, since Catwoman, and obviously people know that movie didn't do well, that the types of roles that she has been either, you know, that she has done or been presented with, it's sort of like that's a mistake she still hasn't in the eyes of some producers and executives and people who make decisions that she hasn't made up for. And just the conversation is like, why is it that you see actress A, B, C, D, E, no matter how many failed movies that they have, the studios continue to book them. And here, you know, you have somebody who's pretty talented and they have had to deal with a lot of the residual negativity from a movie that came out. God, I don't even know, remember when Catwoman came out. Mm-hmm. You know, I went to support it. Really wish she would have passed up on that one, but that's all good. I went to support it, though. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I imagine that Black actors, more than anybody, seem to be defined so much by the failures. And that could happen to literally anybody. Why something doesn't work isn't always about the actors. It, it could be a number of different reasons. But that's just the way it is. So... That's still real. So my season one, I was consumed up two or three o'clock in the morning when I know I got to be in a makeup chair at six, six or 10, because I needed the scripts to be right. I needed the tone to be right. I needed to make sure this was right. And I micromanaged. I mean, you know, I didn't get paid for producing Claus season one, but I definitely have stayed in that steed. You know what I mean? Because I am so freaking passionate about the show. And I would just say, I already know I'm getting in your nerves, but I'm calling you anyway, because this is, I want to look at this, look at this, and let's look at that. You know, so it was important to me to be able to, to, for the entertainment um, community to know that I could carry a show. Is that something with whatever you pick, whether you're carrying the show or, as is uh, the case and when they see us, when you're a part of a, a pretty big cast, do you carry that pressure with you all with whatever you do? Like this has got to be excellent. Not that you don't normally strive for excellence, excellence, but you know what I mean? That if 
in the back of your mind are you thinking subconsciously, if this isn't good, then people are going to use this as an excuse to not give me something later on down the line? No, I, I, no, I think it was very, very specific with regards to being number one on a call sheet. And moving up to finally having the number one next to your name and having to prove that you could handle it. By handle it, I mean perform to such a degree that the numbers don't lie and that they say, come on back again. Wait a minute, run that back one more time. You know what I mean? That sort of thing. The other part, I'm always going to do my best, you know, and... You can have a project that maybe didn't perform the way you want it to, but as long as you lay your head down and you're happy with the work, I don't even think about, I don't even think about it the other way. Cat uh, Williams said something interesting that <laughs> he doesn't care about being in a bad movie as long as his part is good. <laughs> <laughs> now, okay. <laughs> yes. That's one way to look at it. Yes. Uh, would you ever take a part, a good part in a bad movie? But what's a good part in a bad movie? You know what I mean? It's yeah. kind of like either you know the movie sucks and it's a money grab and you make your part as best you can mm -hmm. or you get there and you're like, oh my God, this is going to go bad. This one's going to go bad. You know what I mean? And you just are like, okay, well. I'm in it now. <laughs> yeah. What What do I'm always I always wonder that. Like, what do actors do when you when you ha a either have to take a money grab or b once you kind of get into circumstances you realize this project is about to be some bullshit. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. how do you how do you handle that? You know, I did this movie up in Canada one time, and I was like, "Yep, this, uh, yep." All right, guys, we're doing it. We're, we're really doing it. All right, we're doing it. It's nothing you can really do. I mean, because you're contractually obligated and you you can try to course correct a pinch. But if it's not your movie, you don't really have a, a, a leg to stand on. You just got to ride your part out, maybe raise your hand every now and then and see if you can invite somebody to think differently, you know, but. Other than that, you just gotta ride it. It out. is what it is. Get get all get all your Razzie awards, and you know, get ready to see your Rotten Tomato score. What can you do? Yeah, I remember Jamie Foxx. He apologized to people for the movie he did, Held Up, which I have to say is one of the five worst movies I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> it was brutal. I was like, dude. I mean, I know times get tight, so I am not judging if sometimes you have to take certain projects just to get by. But that was one I'm like, man, you'd have been better off doing something on YouTube or whatever. Just <laughs> like, I don't know what that was. Yeah, we all got one. Yeah, everybody has one, right? Um, so, but I do think you are on to your next brilliant movie idea that I saw on your Instagram, uh, that Shaq is your neighbor. I'm here for a buddy comedy with you and Shaq. Well, you know, the funny thing about that, we started talking about doing a project together um, at the last Upfronts. And so I think we're going to work it out um, as long as I don't have to touch his feet in it. We are his feet don't be... really look like that, do they? What? Oh, that's true. Okay. Because I've seen the pictures. I was like, surely somebody photoshopped this. This, this, my man's feet don't 
Oh, they do. Yeah, they do. And he's your neighbor, so I know you've seen him. Uh, as long as I don't have to touch his feet in the movie, we good. Oh, my goodness. I mean, have you given him some instruction about what to do with those He keeps things? saying, I want Nisa Nash to give me a pedicure. No, you don't. No, you don't. Million dollars, you wouldn't do See, it. See, it's the difference between claws, having claws, and having paws. You got paws. <laughs> so, no. All right. Because, I mean, no. since you're on a show that no. is based on a... No. No. <laughs> no. A thousand times, no. Well, what I haven't been in sports for a long time. What people don't know is that often professional basketball players have the worst feet because they're on them all the time and the pounding. And so they go through a lot of abuse. And what they learn uh, a couple after a couple years in the league, because the vets usually tell them, is to start getting pedicures. Because if you don't, you'll wind up with Shaq's feet. We'll see. <laughs> yes, you know what I mean? you, there you go. Yeah. There you go. But, He's the poster child. But I could definitely see a buddy cop movie. You and Shaq. We're going to do something together. Now, is there anybody, uh, I'm sure there's probably an ever-changing list, um, putting Shaq aside, is there anybody you really, really, really want to work with that's on your career bucket list? Well, the one person who I'm trying to put together something with right now is Chrissy Metz. Absolutely one of my favorite people. Um, And then I want to do an ensemble with some of my favorite girls, you know, just people who I just, I love not necessarily because you, of what you do, but of just what you mean to me in my life. You know what I mean? You didn't ask, but I'm available. Just okay. so you know. <laughs> I, was, I, I was just about to I, say. I, I, could, I didn't want it to be awkward. So I was like, let me, yeah, I, I know she wait. wants to ask me to be a part of this. I was going to wait till we wrapped up. Yeah, see, I, I felt like it. Um, I, I can't act um, at all, but that's okay. You know, sometimes no, no, no. you can just sell it on charisma. No, I got something for you to do. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, God. Don't worry. Well, I appreciate you humoring me. Um, <laughs> I've only played myself in roles. I've never played anybody else. So, um, But I just want to thank you just in general for taking the time out, joining me. Uh, I think you got such a great story. I love Claws. And people, if you have not seen Claws, I need you to get on it. It is easily one of the best television shows um, that's out there. And I think you play one of the best characters on TV. Oh, I love Desna. thank you. Yeah. I love her too. Yeah, and I'm shocked because your nails look very... Because I'm I'm on another job. Okay, so you can yeah, have I, I had to. Yeah, I had to take these down. I'm playing a an activist in the 70s named uh, Flo Kennedy. Mm. And this is how her nails looked when I did my research. So I couldn't look like... <laughs> yeah, didn't look like what I did. Because I've seen some other interviews where I was like, "Wow, the nails!" Oh yeah, yeah, it's a whole situation. Yeah, because I imagine people look at your the nails. The first thing they do. Yeah, they want to know. The ve- let me see your nails. Oh wait, don't look at mine. And I so every time I'm like, "Move it along, lady. It's nothing to see here. <laughs> no fancy pants happening right now." Uh, well, for those listening, there is a little bit more to to see here or to listen here on this podcast because, of course, your favorite segment. Final segment, as it always is, on this podcast is coming up next. Fuck it, I'm bothered. So let's just get to today's example of absolute fuckery. Now, I know the name of the segment is Fuck It, I'm Bothered, but I felt as if this situation that I'm about to get into deserve this fuckery label because that's what it is. In addition, of course, to making me feel bothered as fuck. So when I was growing up, one of my favorite games to play 
uh, on the playground in elementary school was dodgeball. And I was mean with it. I used to hit cats in the chest, the groin, even hit a couple dudes in the face. Uh, But back when I played, we didn't have any rules about whether or not you could hit people in the face. If you got hit, you just better hope that shit didn't leave a mark and keep it moving. Well, thank God I'm not playing dodgeball in 2019 because apparently you might go to jail. Correction, if you're black and playing dodgeball, you might go to jail. So 10-year-old Bryce Lindsay is being charged with aggravated assault over a dodgeball game that happened in April. And yes, it's August. This game happened April 29th. Apparently, Bryce hit a classmate in the face with a dodgeball, and the child he hit sustained a concussion. It was, by all accounts, a complete accident. Now, it was bad enough that he received a one-day suspension, but then his mother recently received a notice from a local juvenile court that they would be proceeding with charges over a fucking dodgeball game. Now, I know this is going to surprise you, but guess what? The kid who sustained the concussion is, wait for it, white. Now, this is that bullshit I'm talking about. From damn near the womb, black kids are criminalized. Studies have shown that black students are far more likely to be disciplined at school than kids of other races. Black kids also are five times more likely to be detained or committed to youth facilities. Now, I'm sorry that this kid was hit with a dodgeball in the face, especially considering he reportedly has had a previous medical condition that makes him vulnerable to head injuries. Although if that's the case, why is he playing dodgeball in the first place? But I'm going to mind my business on that. Anyway, this is just unfortunately another example of how black kids have so much more against them. It's also a sad reminder that our kids can't even be children and that someone or something or some system is always there to remind them that their lives can be rendered meaningless as soon as someone else decides that to be the case. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify Studios and Unbothered Inc. and recorded and edited by Rich Burner and Cadence 13. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Evan Dick is our executive producer. Jesse Burton is the executive producer for Spotify. And Denise Holly is the program manager. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Hold up. 